Welcome to a special edition of the Deep Space Podcast, a roadmap for space exploration. Today we'll be discussing what direction the United States, and particularly NASA, might be headed in space under a new administration in Congress. I'm your host, Dr. Mary Lynn Didmar of the Coalition for Deep Space Exploration, and what will be my last Deep Space podcast as I'm leading the Coalition for New Challenges. I have greatly enjoyed speaking with some of the movers and shakers in the space business and in space policy during the past year, and hope that you have enjoyed listening. Rather than looking back, however, today's podcast is about looking ahead. The Coalition has just released a policy paper entitled A Space Exploration Roadmap for the New Administration. I'm happy to be joined by Coalition team members Kristen Kapovic, our Director of Operations and Strategic Alliances, and Jamil Castillo, our Space Policy and Digital Communications Manager, to discuss several of the topics laid out in the paper. Hi, this is Kristen here. We know there's broad support in Congress and in the broader space community for much of our nation's current goals and programs in space. However, with a new administration, often comes new direction. Today, we want to take a look at the big picture at where we are and where we should be headed. I'll turn it over to my colleague, Jamil, to get started with some discussion. Hi. So, Marilyn, five decades after Apollo, the United States is embarking on a new human deep space exploration program. This time, the plan is for NASA to go to the moon as a stepping stone to Mars. What is the value of this approach as opposed to, say, just going directly to Mars? So thanks, uh, Kristen and Jamil, um, for, for that question. So just a couple of things um, for people to keep in mind. One of them is that the moon is three days away and Mars is six months away, depending on the path or road or trajectory that you take to get there. And that difference in distance isn't just about transit time. It's also about logistics chains and what it takes to be able to take cargo um, to different places in space in order to sustain human presence there. So part of the reason for the development of the space launch system, um, which is the new rocket under development that is scheduled to fly later this year, and the Orion crew vehicle, which is designed to take human beings further into deep space than they've ever gone before, is to be able to accommodate these kinds of distances. It just sort of makes sense to start sooner, um, and it also makes sense to start closer, and those two things go together. So beginning to move out toward the moon um, and then using it as an opportunity to learn, to live, and work in an environment that's completely unlike the one in which our species evolved is very important for future thinking about how it is that we're going to go to Mars or to even other bodies other than Mars. Without that experience, it becomes a lot more of a leap, a giant leap, to coin a phrase, but one that's going to strain our capabilities and place our astronauts at tremendous risk. So going to the moon is also risky. Um, going to space is risky. It's a very hostile environment. But the moon offers a lot of things to us, um, not just the opportunity to learn how to live and work there, but also the scientific value of the moon is tremendous. It's the Rosetta Stone of our inner solar system, 
It was formed uh, in the same general time period as a lot of the other bodies here in the intersolar system, but it's been um, unscarred by uh, atmosphere. It's been unchanged by erosion. And so there's a lot of information about the formation of the moon, and then we hope to learn more about the formation of the solar system from the moon. We also have a lot to learn about being able to use the moon's surface and the soil, which we call regolith that's there, and the chemicals that are locked inside it to be able to live off the surface. And everything that we learn, even though it's not directly applicable to Mars in some ways, will be helpful to us when we start to learn someplace else, live someplace else. The two other things I want to mention is going back to the moon with our international partners gives us an opportunity to expand upon the incredible international partnership that we've had in the International Space Station by not only involving those partners, depending upon their willingness to participate, but also opening up to other partners. And deep space exploration, actually all space exploration, especially that involving humans, but also science, has been a tool for diplomacy of the United States, as well as other nations, for decades. And finally, there are a lot of folks that are interested in figuring out if they can do business on the moon, if they can use the chemicals that are there inside regolith, extract oxygen, break it down, um, uh, extract water rather, break it down into oxygen and hydrogen, uh, make rocket fuel, store that fuel, learn how to uh, develop power systems on the moon, and then perhaps sell those back to Earth uh, as they become more efficient. Lots of opportunities to figure out how to engage entrepreneurial interests on the moon. Some of this is decades away, but until we get there and start exploring it and trying to figure out how to do things, we won't have an opportunity to find out how well those things might work. So all of these are reasons to go back to the moon. Marilyn, to expand on that a little bit, one topic that frequently comes up in conversation is whether the United States should outsource its deep space exploration goals to private companies or more heavily utilized public-private partnerships. Can you touch on the significance of our national programs, particularly in exploring deep space? Sure, and this is something essential to the Coalition for Deep Space Exploration and its work, right, which is to try to inform and remind people of the value of the national programs. When NASA started, some of its original goals were to explore space, but also to make uh, possible the development of commercial capabilities to go out into space, as well as to make possible and contribute to the development of technologies that might have dual use um, or multiple uses, and to advance science. And the U.S., especially with the advent of what became the Apollo program, has always used deep space exploration as a signaling mechanism. And by signaling, I mean a means by which it communicates to the rest of the globe that the U.S. is committed to a future in space such that it will pledge its, its treasury, its intellectual capital, um, its capability, and its political commitment over decades to assure that that happens. That is still the case, despite a lot of misinformation out there. Congress, in particular, has been extraordinarily consistent in their direction that the United States put together national programs and capabilities and venture back out into deep space as it has been extraordinarily consistent in its commitment to the International Space Station and low Earth orbit 
And both of those have been in law for 15 years, going on 15, actually more than 15 years now, across successive Congresses. So part of this is simply communicating to the rest of the world that the U.S., by dint of building these national capabilities, okay, is in it to stay. Uh, we're interested in, in exploration, we're interested in science, and we're interested in commercial development, and, um, and the full faith and measure of the U.S. government stands behind those commitments. It's really difficult. Um, I wrote an op-ed last year where I talked about geopolitics a lot and said, you know, you really can't come to the geopolitical table with somebody else's rocket. That's not to say that the development of the space transportation systems that are going on now uh, through a variety of different companies, I mean, I think there's 130 companies trying to bring rockets to the market right now around the world, that that's not a good thing. I mean, not a bad thing. It, it's a great thing, actually, that that's happening. And I'd like to point out that's happening exactly the way it should, right? When you invest in these national programs, except for those things that are classified, the capabilities that are developed inside those programs are then available to other entities who may want to use them. And that's, in fact, what's happened. If you look at SpaceX, for example, um, its Merlin engine was based on an earlier engine development by NASA. Um, Blue Origin is, is certainly using propulsion techniques, um, iterating on them for new engines that, that were originally developed during the space program. Um, the commercial crew vehicles have had the benefit of having uh, knowledge, processes, technologies transferred from the development of the Orion crew vehicle. Over 60, okay, have been transferred to the commercial crew program. And that's part of how there's a return on the taxpayer investment in, into these programs. So the presence of the U.S. in deep space is backed up by the national capabilities and the national vehicles and, and launch vehicles and crew vehicles is critically important. Um, but also this all, this all basically creates an innovation cycle um, that takes place, that plays out over decades. And that's exactly what we want to see. It's working the way it should. So... Marilyn, I want to now talk a little bit about low Earth orbit and our presence there. So humans have been living there in low Earth orbit permanently for 20 years now, which is just amazing. Is there a risk of a gap in low Earth orbit, uh, human spaceflight, as we move more into deep space? What are your thoughts on a strategy for a permanent presence on LEO? So... Um, one of the things that we point out in the paper is that we need LEO to go to deep space. Um, we need the capability, just as I talked about the moon being three hours away, or sorry, uh, three days away, as opposed to six months away, space station is three hours away as opposed to three days away. And what we were able to do so far on the space station has been extraordinary. We've learned a tremendous amount about how humans survive and thrive or struggle in space. We've learned um, a great deal about uh, habitats in space and how it is that they hold up to the environment of space. We've also learned a lot about environmental control and life support systems as they're set up inside habitats and go to space. And we will need for permanent human presence on other bodies the capability to have what's called closed or nearly closed life support systems. By that, I mean they're regenerative they don't have to constantly be supplemented with entirely new materials in order to be able to continue to provide life support. So if you had a life support system that you had to refeed 
um, with oxygen and refeed with water um, and refeed uh, with the power to operate itself all the time, um, then essentially what you you have is a what we call an open system, one that is not going to be very efficient in creating an opportunity for for humans to live in a healthy and safe manner. So the space station has been the single greatest development that we've had in the United States and being, being able to sort of test those systems and learn more about how those systems operate in space. And I'm just talking about life support here. There are a number of technologies that have been and will be tested on board the ISS or in the vicinity of the ISS that will be helpful for us to move into deep space. Um, 3D printing is another one, right? One of the coalition companies made in space, now Redwire, put the first 3D printer in space on board the space station. And the idea of using 3D printing or additive manufacturing, as it's called, to help us, quote, live off the land, close quote, as we move to the moon and other bodies is also one of great promise for us. So permanent presence in low Earth orbit is in draft legislation. Permanent American presence in low Earth orbit is in draft legislation. And it's important for national and strategic and security reasons as well as to ensure that we have ample opportunity to develop those new technologies. China's putting space stations in orbit, and they're opening the door, come one, come all, do research here, fly your astronauts here. And uh, our position vis-a-vis China is we collaborate with them where we can, but we're also aware of them as a rising competitive power. And it makes no sense to most of us to say um, access to low-Earth orbit you know, would be controlled by, by another another nation. We've already had a number of years of that since the stand down of the shuttle. And to your point about a gap, um, we really need to avoid that situation that occurred with the shuttle, where we stood down the shuttle and we did not have the capability to launch Americans from American soil for many, many years afterwards. We don't want to end up in a situation where the space station, which will eventually come to an end, comes to an end, and we have not got in place um, other platforms to be able to um, to basically reflect American presence, to allow NASA to do some ongoing research that will continue to do, and also to expand the commercial use of low Earth orbit. All of this is going to take a whole of government approach. NASA has sort of been given the responsibility for trying to figure all this out, but really it's a, it's a U.S. government strategic initiative that needs to be considered in that manner, certainly with uh, support, advice, and counsel from NASA, which has all the space expertise. But it really uh, it has applications in a number of different uh, areas of government. And so we at the coalition would like to see a low-Earth orbit strategy developed sooner rather than later, which will address issues having to do with ISS transition, but also future uses of low-Earth orbit. As you mentioned, a whole-of-government approach in LEO, Let's look at the reestablishment of the National Space Council, which for any of our listeners who may not be aware, the Space Council is composed of cabinet-level members headed by the Vice President. Marilyn, what would you say the value of the Space Council has been, and do you think it should continue? So, thanks, Kristen. I think the Space Council has been valuable. It really served to elevate the role of space in the life of everyday Americans and also in the business of government in a way that hadn't happened for a long time. This isn't the first time the Space Council has been brought into existence. It actually is sort of a reboot of earlier, uh, a couple of earlier iterations of the Space Council. 
But as time has gone on, it's become increasingly apparent across the government and to many segments of the public just how important space is in our day-to-day life. Everything from the use of ATMs to navigating with your cell phone to navigating with your car to uh, other issues having to do with, for example, defense of the United States, uh, control of commercial satellites, your ability to access entertainment. Um, and those things are, uh, we sort of talk about those things and sort of be on the lighter side of life, but there's almost no part of your life at this point, any life of listeners that is not touched in some way by space. On a day-to-day basis, you encounter it um, without being aware that you're encountering it because it's coming to you filtered through a bunch of different devices and uh, capabilities. So space is a crucial aspect of our um, United States government, our current public functioning and our future functioning. And I think the National Space Council at this point in time was a really good time to illustrate just how important that is. The other thing that's real important is it emphasized the need for interagency coordination. To your point, Kristen, about the whole of government approach. As I mentioned before, um, when people think about civil space, they think about NASA. If they're a little more aware of the space business, they may think about the FAA, which is responsible for granting commercial space uh, launch licenses, uh, among other things. They may be aware of the Department of Commerce, which has played a role in, in trying to access uh, capabilities such as, you know, remote observation um, and develop some other um, sort of business-friendly approaches to enabling space. But the... Uh, the bottom line here is that we do need cross-agency cooperation and collaboration in order to continue pushing forward in space. And the National Space Council stood for that. Now, I don't know how well all of the implementation worked. Um, I can tell you on the user advisory group, the CDSC had a chair, a, a role of this user's advisory group, and I served on it for the last two years. We did a number of uh, investigations, listened to several people, um, there were six major subcommittees, all of which did great work. Uh, there were a couple of white papers that were produced that I think will continue to have legs because they addressed issues, nonpartisan issues, issues that really just had to do with the good of the nature, nation and the future of the nation in space. Um, there, the, the CDSC is on record, along with 15 other associations, I believe, in, um, in basically su- suge- suggesting and advocating to the White House. Uh, just very recently, I think the letter was just released yesterday, actually, that the National Space Council and the Users Advisory Group be continued, that industry supports them as a means to raise the prominence of several of these issues and to focus government attention on them. So, uh, Marilyn, I, I think it goes without saying that these days, we are all pretty preoccupied with problems right here on our own planet. As we try to address issues here on Earth, like climate change, for example, is deep space science something we can leverage to help us? Yes, Jamil, thanks for the question. Yeah, it absolutely is. And you know, we touch on this in the paper also. Um, lots of people aren't aware that there are models, uh, you know, scientific models, quantitative models, for how the Earth sort of lives and breathes, right? There's a water cycle on the Earth that has to do with how moisture is uh, collected on the surface of the Earth and then evaporated into the atmosphere and then collected again into the atmosphere and recycled back to the Earth. 
And that moist, and that's a very, very top level description of it. But, but that water cycle exists on other planets that have water. Um, that water may be trapped in ice. That moder- water may be, um, uh, mixed with other, um, other chemicals, a little differently, different chemistry than we have here on Earth. But those water cycles, when we look at those on other planets, and, and we're just learning about them, um, when we continue to learn about them, we can use them as comparative models to evaluate what's happening on our own planet and then learn about them by looking at them in comparison to the Earth also. So water worlds, uh, getting out and looking at water worlds, Europa, um, Enceladus, uh, some others, there's exoplanets way, 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 way out there that, that apparently also have water. Is going to teach us about about our own planet. We also learn about our own planet by looking at what's happened to other planetary bodies. You know, the one that's most obvious is Mars. Mars used to have a tremendous amount of surface water. It doesn't now. It's got some water captured on the surface in ice and and apparently has subterranean water. But what happened to all that surface water, right? What happened to the atmosphere of Mars? Why did whatever happened to the atmosphere of Mars happen at Mars? Learning those things may teach us a lot about what's happening to our own planet, especially as we face climate change and we look into the future. Everything that we can learn about what's happened on other planetary bodies or the processes of those bodies that happens there in terms of those systems is going to end up having some educative uh, impact on what we're learning about our own planet. So it's not just about... Um, looking at our planet from above, which is something that NASA also helps with, right? Especially in, in combination with NOAA. Um, it's something that NASA certainly helps with. And there's a tremendous amount of earth science and climate science that goes on at NASA. And we've all benefited from that. Um, NASA helps think about these issues in general, which is contrary to kind of what people think. I think they think it's just all about deep space or, um, or, uh, you know, deep space science or deep space exploration or, or LEO, but, a lot of the work that NASA has done over decades has helped inform our understanding about what happens here on Earth. And if anything, those needs are even more urgent now. Can you touch on a little bit some of the more specific ways that NASA and space in general are addressing some of the problems that people face here on Earth? So a lot of people know about NASA's spinoff publications. If you don't know about it, you can go to NASA's website and just type spinoff and you'll, you'll find it. NASA publishes a report every year which details technologies that have been developed by the agency or in partnership with others who have been uh, working with the agency and the application of those technologies or that knowledge. But more to the point, the things that NASA has to contend with in order to move humans into deep space, and this, this answer is really more specifically about human space exploration. It touches on the same sorts of challenges that humans have had since we first walked out of caves or off the savanna before that, right? Uh, we require clean water in order to be able to, um, well, to drink it also, but to manage hygiene and disease. Um, we require energy to be able to light our way, cook our meals, um, in this day and age to be able to do pretty much anything that has to do with technology application. We need safe places to live. We need habitats that protect us from the environment. Um, we need habitats on this planet who, that protect us from predators, um, but also uh, from the, the changes in our environment. And all of those things are true in space. 
All of these have been bottlenecks that have faced humanity since the beginning. And they've all, and they've faced humanity's migration since the beginning. So when we've left a place that we think of as home to go to a new place that we don't know about to explore and to discover there, we have to address these issues over and over and over again. Clean water, the availability of power or energy, um, the creation of habitats that allow us to live and work safely. And so the way that NASA and space in general are beginning to address those issues has to do with the challenges of living in these hostile environments. I mentioned before environmental um, life control systems, right, or control systems and, and life support. Um, learning how to build closed systems that allows us to recycle, to recapture and recycle um, clean water and to make it available for our use, that's something NASA's been doing since the beginning of human spaceflight. Those systems are getting better and better. Think about the applicability of those systems down here on Earth. As the stresses on our global water system increase, and they are increasing as our population increases, the ability to be able to have systems that enable us to be able to do that, that's tremendous. Um, that has tremendous potential for the health and well-being of the, of the whole species and the whole planet. Power systems. In space, we need systems that allow us to collect power, store power, uh, distribute power, and they've got to be super efficient and they have to work in all kinds of, you know, crazy environments compared to what we have here on Earth, right? They have to work in vacuums. They have to work in very extreme thermal conditions, lots of heat, lots of cold. Um, and so developing power systems that are more efficient and allow, allow them to work locally as well as on a distributed basis, that's tremendously helpful. Um, habitat development, the ability to quickly put up habitats and be able to have those habitats operate in tough environments. You can operate a habitat on the moon. You can operate that habitat or some version of it on Earth. And the faster that we can figure out how to use advanced materials or use materials that are available to us, like through additive manufacturing, which we mentioned before, then again, the ability to translate those things back to Earth, um, that has tremendous promise also for creating habitats that may be cheap and reliable and more robust right here on the planet. So... Um, there's literally thousands of spinoffs. I can't catalog all of them. But just to get people thinking, uh, these challenges that we always have to face as a species when we move from one location into a new one, those are the same challenges that we have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis on Earth in, in lots of ways. And the more we can learn about how to address those challenges in space, um, the more we'll learn about how to take care of them on Earth. Thanks, Mary Lynn. Well, on that note, we should probably wrap things up. We want to thank all our listeners for joining us today. And for anyone who's new, we'll put in a little plug here for the coalition. We discuss topics like this every day and advocate for the value of space, space commerce, space science, and the overall importance of space to our nation. We'll go ahead and put a link to our paper, which we discussed here today, a space exploration roadmap for the new administration. And that'll be up on our podcast page at exploredeepspace.com. Thank you, Kristen. And thank you, Jamil. And thanks, Kristen. It's been a great pleasure working with you and talking about these things today on this episode of Deep Space Podcast.